It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what will we be doing when we get to heaven? Part 3. Coming up in this episode, in our last two episodes, we talked about the privileges and work that Jesus' disciples will be given when they get to heaven. What happens to those who were called and followed Jesus but didn't quite do the job the way they should have? Do they end up with work and responsibilities as well? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus' true disciples go to heaven. Not only did Jesus make this clear, but several other scriptures show us this amazing result of God's grace upon a life dedicated to walking in Jesus' sacrificial footsteps. In the first two parts of this three-part series, we uncovered many heavenly privileges, inheritances, and responsibilities that these faithful ones will have. However, at the end of our last episode, we left one question unanswered. This question has to do with another group of Jesus' followers. Several scriptures allude to this second group of followers as being faithful, but not as faithful as his truest disciples. So what happens to them? Do they also get to go to heaven, or do they have another destiny? Fortunately, the Bible gives us this answer and gives it in surprising detail. We encourage you to listen to all three parts in this series in order to get the comprehensive answer to this important question. Using our companion CQ Rewind show notes found at ChristianQuestions.com and on the Christian Questions app for each episode is a great resource for your personal study. But first, let's briefly recap what we've already covered. We looked at this topic through the lens of four aspects of the Christian's heavenly reward. Those four were groundwork, privilege, inheritance, and responsibilities. Lens one, heavenly groundwork. What's God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation for heaven. Lens two was heavenly privilege. Some of the unmerited privileges faithful Christians will be given. Lens three, heavenly inheritance some of the amazing aspects of heavenly life the faithful will own. And finally, Lens 4, Heavenly Responsibilities, some of the requirements a faithful Christian life will lead to. In Parts 1 and 2, we've been going through the prophecy described in Isaiah 61. Let's pick up where we left off with verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Okay, so there's several details here. We want to expand on just one small detail for right now. We're going to come back to this later on in the podcast. So let's expand on this one detail uh, and consider the rest of the verse later. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is obviously a picture of a wedding, a spiritual wedding, The picture of Jesus as bridegroom and his true disciples as the bride is very well understood in Scripture, and we want to stress this is a spiritual 
heavenly picture here. Let's look at Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It is given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we have this picture alongside of this bridegroom and bride symbolism. We have another prophetic image that takes place also in heaven. Only those in this image are not the same as the bride. So the next Revelation scripture we're looking at is going to be focusing in on another heavenly group, but it's not the bride. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one would count, for every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Okay, so there's several elements here, and the key thing we want to take from this verse now, we'll, we'll touch on it much later, is it talks about a great multitude. Behold a great multitude, they're clothed in white, and it gives a lot of description here. Let's go a little bit further, because in Revelation 7, a few verses down, it helps us to unfold who these might be. It gives a description. Jonathan, Revelation 7, 13 to 15. Then one of the elders asked, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. So what do we see? This is a large number of diverse people in God's temple standing in front of the throne, but not on the throne. In Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. So we know this multitude can't be Jesus's most faithful followers. Who is this great multitude? This is a topic you don't hear much about, so it's probably new to some of our listeners. Different Bible translations call them the great multitude, the great company, or even the great crowd. Some Christians believe these are simply everyone who's gone to heaven. Because after all, a lot of people know the name of Jesus Christ, and many churches teach you just have to believe in his name, and it's an automatic ticket to heaven. And some groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe this is the class they will be resurrected to, but on earth. So who was right? Let's first scripturally establish the location of this great multitude. All right, and we've already alluded to it. The Revelation scripture sure, sure seems to tell us that, but we know, we know that they're in heaven. We know that because they're before the throne of God. This is not, in Revelation, it's not the only place you have this sense of the location of God's throne. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. But, Rick, in Isaiah 66, 1 and Acts 7, 49, the Lord tells us heaven is his throne, but the earth is his footstool. So one could argue that the footstool is before the throne. So those in front of the throne could be an earthly group. However, in that Revelation 7, 9 text, Jonathan, that you read, the Greek word for before, like before the throne, means in the sight of or in the presence of. So we wouldn't say earth is present in heaven. 
So it's it's important to to understand that there is a difference when you take a look at that. Say heaven is God's throne, and you know the earth is His footstool. That's one picture. This is a very different picture because it's talking about being in His temple. There's something very very different, very special, and very in, essentially enclosed about this. And even plainer, Rick, we read in Revelation seven fifteen that this group serves God in His temple, and His temple is in heaven. So if this great multitude isn't the faithful followers who became those trees of righteousness, how did they get here in God's temple? All right. This is a big question, and we're going to suggest an answer. And then we have to prove the answer that we suggest. So we're going to give you the answer without any proof, and then we're going to build the proof in small steps. We're going to suggest that these are a vast number of Christians who answered God's God's call to follow Jesus. They gave their lives to walk in Jesus' footsteps, were given God's Spirit to guide them, but were not completely faithful to all that their call required. That's the suggestion. We haven't given you a lick of proof yet, so let's get started by building the proof small piece by small piece. We're going to begin to unfold the journey of this great multitude with the parable of the ten virgins. So, folks, we're going to not study the parable in depth, but we're going to allude to it. And we're going to look at it as the first piece to a puzzle. You can't figure out the whole picture with just one piece. So here is the first piece of the puzzle. And this all has to do, remember we had those four lenses. It has to do with heavenly groundwork, which means everything we're talking about now is here on earth before you get to heaven. And we're suggesting to you that this particular parable helps us understand the great multitude first small piece of the puzzle. So Jonathan, what we want to do is look at this in Matthew. We want to ask the questions. What's present? In other words, what's good? What's missing? Hmm, What's bad? And then what are the results? Jonathan, Matthew 25, 1 to 4. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. So now we all know the problem of lack of oil arose for the foolish virgins. That's what this particular parable, this illustration is about. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. So we know that they had God's Spirit, and this is really important. They had God's Spirit, but allowed that Spirit to be in short supply as time and experience progressed. And the Holy Spirit is God's power and influence working within us and helping us to understand his word and to develop Christ-likeness in our hearts. It is the same gift to all the followers of Jesus. It is the duty of each one to use this gift of the Lord for its increase. Presumably they didn't have enough oil because they were busy with the plans of life and just didn't pay attention to how much oil they'd need. I think about how easy it is for us to get wrapped up in the world and lose sight of things of eternal importance. And remember, this is a a parable that Jesus is speaking, and he's really talking about his return. So he's saying, in the long time that I'm not here, this is something to be aware of. This is something to watch out for. Again, this is the first piece of this puzzle. So the end result of this particular parable, you all know the story, the end result was not good for them. So Jonathan, let's jump down in the parable to Matthew 25, uh, verses 10 through 12. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. 
But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Okay, I have a question. So how can we say these foolish virgins represent this great multitude who go to heaven? They're locked out. The door was shut. The story ends. We don't even know what happens to the foolish virgins. Well, the door was the entrance to the wedding feast, not heaven itself. This is an important detail to notice. So it's an important detail. Now, we have to understand they're, they're labeled foolish, and Jesus goes as far as to say, I don't know you. Now, here's the key. That's the end of the parable. So we want to be careful to not add, and they lived happily ever after or poorly ever after. It doesn't tell us. It just says, you are not allowed here. What does that mean? We don't know yet. But this helps us to understand there's this class, this, this, this group that's pictured that shows us something is lacking. They were in great favor with God's Spirit and waiting, but when it came down to it, Julie, like you said, they didn't apply things the way they needed to. So let's see if we can wrap up the basic lesson here for this first piece of the puzzle. So again, heavenly groundwork, that first lens that we have been talking about for the last uh, three podcasts. But here we're asking, what's present? What's good? What's missing? And what are the results? So Jonathan, what's good? What's present here? Well, the foolish virgins illustrated a strong beginning to a fact sacrificial Christian life, watching and waiting by a spiritual light that is fueled by God's Spirit. They're in the company of those who followed through. This is a good beginning. Absolutely, absolutely a good, strong beginning. Everything's in place. They're in fellowship with those who are ultimately the most faithful. So, Julie, what's missing? Well, they're still virgins. They've got oil. They've got lamps. But they didn't exhibit spiritual foresight because they didn't think to prepare for the long haul of Christian perseverance. They weren't prepared for the darkness of night or how long it would take for the bridegroom to return. So you have a lack being shown here. And this is important because they're favored, but then there's a lack. And the result, what's the result? The result is the foolish virgins are locked out of the very thing they waited for, the wedding feast with Jesus their Lord. Now, again, this is not the end of the story, but it is the end of the parable. The story of the great multitude continues. Jesus isn't trying to tell us everything. He's giving us this single warning with this single parable. So, Jonathan, what do we take away from this particular example? Jesus was plainly teaching that spiritual focus and actions are required of those who will inherit the highest gifts ever given to humanity. His stark closing of the door shows that divine glory, immortality, is not a gift that you can be given to any except the most dedicated. So it is a picture of the necessity of absolute focus and faithfulness no matter what. So this can be a kind of a scary thing. You, you try hard, but not hard enough. And, and as a result, the door is closed in front of you. Jesus's words to the five foolish virgins do feel harsh. What else is written about those who fall short? Jesus' very next parable is the parable of the talents. It reveals Jesus entrusting his servants with his wealth, which we suggest represents the gospel and our own growth in it. He gives a portion to each servant according to their ability. Upon returning, they report in, and the two servants who were given much return much more. However, the one servant 
who was given one talent, and we're going to suggest is a representation of this great multitude. This one servant had a very different story. So this parable immediately follows the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And Jesus often, when he teaches in parables, builds a larger lesson by telling a piece at a time, puzzle piece after puzzle piece. So Jesus here is expanding the same basic teaching in a different way. Here's This parable brings us a second piece of the puzzle to understanding this great multitude. So let's again look through lens one, heavenly groundwork, the things that are being done here in this life. What's present for this great multitude? What's missing? And what are the results? Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 25, verses 24 to 25, and then we'll, we'll go to verses 28 to 30 as well. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, and gathering where you scatter no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The parable continues, and the master isn't happy. He says the servant should have at least put the talent in the bank to gain interest, but the servant didn't do what he was supposed to. Continuing with verse 28, Therefore, take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, if this servant represents the great <laughs> multitude in heaven, outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth sure doesn't sound like heaven. And the Bible uses this phrase seven times to express a reaction to a great loss of opportunity throughout and at the end of the age of the gospel message. This loss is most often experienced by classes of people and sometimes individuals, but is not, and let me repeat this, but is not related to a final judgment after death. We carefully review each of the seven uses in episode 869. Does, do the fires of hell come from God, part one, for those who want to take a closer look. Okay, so what we have here is this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're right, Julie, that doesn't sound like a great end result. Newsflash, no. it's not an end result. It is a result of experiences, but it's not the end of the story. But it does add something to what Jesus said in the previous parable. So small step by small step, we're building the understanding that helps us to see this, this great multitude. So again, looking through that lens, that first lens, that heavenly groundwork, the three questions, what's present, what's missing, and what are the results? Jonathan, what's present? What's good here? This worthless slave had the rare privilege of being one of few who the master Jesus absolutely trusted. He had the ability, opportunity, and time to serve profitably. Okay, he had all of those things literally in his hand. Here it is. It was in his hand. He was chosen to move forward with the master's work. This is really good. But Julie, what's missing? The strength and confidence to act on what this servant knew he was tasked to do. Instead of action for the benefit of the master, he buried his opportunities in the earth and out of fear, he became idle while ignoring his responsibility. The Lord expects growth. So he be, out of fear, he became idle. We've got to remember this is what's missing. And there's a contrast. And 
look, this is why Jesus teaches us in these particular parables. He's showing us contrast between utter faithfulness and a lack of complete faithfulness. The result of this particular parable is this servant, this unworthy servant, is thrown into an outer darkness instead of entering into the joy of his Lord. He is now out of the highest favor and trust of the master. That's pretty serious. In this condition, he experiences, Jonathan, you explained it, he experiences weeping and gnashing of teeth, great frustration and great angst over his decisions. There's something here that he deeply regrets. The one talent servant dug a hole in the ground, buried his opportunity to serve the master in the earth. I like like the expression, he chose soil over toil. And this is a metaphor for being focused on earthly things rather than spiritual things. And it all came down to not being loyal. So there you have it. Soil over toil, and you lose your ability to be loyal. So (laughs) what we have is 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 an example that Jesus gives us to say, be aware, be on the alert. It's easy to fall into these things. So Jonathan, what are we taking away from this example of the parable of the talents? Well, Jesus is building a picture with these two parables. In this parable, he shows us that the great multitude, those on the outside of God's highest gift, will have deep and heartfelt regret and for not fulfilling their potential. This implies that this is not the end of the story, but it is the end of a defining experience. So it seems, though, that this uh, example still doesn't tell us that they're in heaven yet because throw out the worthless slave seems like he was fired, not elevated to a position like in heaven, metaphorically. Right. So what we have to do is we have to take a time out after this parable because it's not the end of the game. The clock has not run out on this whole story. There is more to be had. Let's not create a conclusion that Jesus hasn't himself drawn. This is just part. And Jesus does this all the time. Prophecies do this all the time. They tell you things in pieces, and it's up to us to put the Scripture together to find the harmony to understand. So we've got this, the first parable, which is, I don't know you. The door is closed. The next parable is, you have great anxiety and angst over your loss and your lack because you realize what you could have done and what you did, and you say, ah, that was bad. I, I just didn't do a good job. Those are the two pieces we have so far. Now let's take another look at this great multitude. And this, this next piece is kind of a bigger piece. It's going to really help to put these previous two together. This time it's going to be looked at through the writings of the Apostle Paul and again, through that first lens of heavenly groundwork, what happens here in our earthly walk, what's present, what's missing, and what are the results. In our next evidence of this secondary spiritual class, we have the Apostle Paul writing to spirit-begotten Christians, those who have dedicated themselves to Christ and have received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, let's stop here. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Be careful what you build on that foundation. Paul is comparing building materials with which to build our characters and faithfully serve God and Jesus. Acts of love and mercy, for example, are eternal ways to show the love of God. On the other hand, things like personal prosperity, human wisdom, and selfish ambition 
aren't solid foundations. Continuing with verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So what you have is the foundation, which is Christ. The building materials are compared and contrasted. And the apostle then says, okay, the work is going to be tested here. And the testing is going to be fire. Now, fire is a very powerful testing tool. And here's how the apostle concludes this particular thought. Jonathan, let's go to verses 14 and 15. If any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When those building materials are tested, what happens? Fire either destroys or refines. Put gold and silver in a fire, they get purified. Heating precious stones actually helps improve color, clarity, and overall appearance, although some commentaries think this means building stones like marble and granite. But wood, hay, and straw burn up, leaving nothing valuable. Paul's saying, among us we have two groups, one who builds with this, one who builds with that, and there will come a time when the judgment and testing of fire will reveal the difference between the two. And the one whose work survives, the one who built with eternal things, receives the reward. On the other hand, if any man's work is burned, he shall suffer loss. The loss of receiving the divine nature of the elite church class. We talk so much about that in part two. And yet he saved. So we see that there's two classes of people here. Only one receives the reward, but the other is still valuable to God. And this is like burying the talent in the earth and not going to the market to get enough oil. This second group takes an earthly approach to what should be spiritual. So you have all of this, you have all of these details, and you see how when we look at this 1 Corinthian scripture and go back to the previous two parables, this is giving us a further walk down the road. It's giving us a longer picture to say there is fire. Okay, look, when you build something and it's destroyed, what do you have? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I should have, I should have, I should have. You see, you have the, 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 the clarity of the first two parables explained plainly by Paul in different language. And he's saying they, they, what they built, what they did, it didn't work, but they're saved anyway. And that's a powerful, powerful thought here. So when we look at these verses from the Apostle Paul through this lens of heavenly groundwork, what's present, what's good, what's missing, and what are the results? So Jonathan, what's good about this? What's present? The foundation of Jesus Christ upon which to build a fruitful life of discipleship. Both groups have the amazing opportunity to know and closely follow Jesus. They both have the same foundation. This is important. So, Julie, what's missing? Spiritually minded choices. These Christians choose to build with earthly and perishable things upon a foundation meant for spiritual and eternal glory. Human comfort, familiarity, and desire drive these foolish choices. It's a recipe for regret. It is. And that's why when you put these three different lessons together, you're seeing a bigger picture. And the final result of this, what these Christians have built is easily destroyed in the fire of testing. In spite of this, failed structure that they built. It was reduced to ashes. These Christians are saved from destruction themselves, though the saving is through hard and fiery testing. Saved from destruction. What does that mean? Remember we talked about being given God's spirit, 
be, being, being favored. You have the foundation of Jesus. What does that mean? You're called. You're chosen. You are building something on the greatest foundation that was ever given to mankind. And so they're saved from destruction, from essentially from second death, because they were redeemed already. And they didn't do as much as they could have. But God saw something there. So what do we take away? What do we take away from this particular example in 1 Corinthians? The Apostle Paul builds on what Jesus had already taught. He verifies the tragedy of this great multitude, those who are trusted with extraordinary privilege and for various reasons choose to not live up to their potential. He then plainly states that they will be granted mercy and be saved from their mediocrity through fiery, purifying experiences. So we're talking about being granted mercy and being saved from their mediocrity. So let's understand, this group, who are they? We're calling them the great multitude. There is no calling to this class. There is no invitation to this class. It's a class, as we're describing here, as the Apostle Paul described, it's a class that's built on mercy. It's still a sacrificial life. They still built, but it wasn't what God wanted them through Christ to build. So it's, it's, this is not just anybody who, who, who claims the name of Jesus. These are those who are begotten by God's Spirit, who are sacrificial, but don't fulfill their calling. Also, one, one other thing about this. You know, we look at this and we say, boy, these people are bad. Well, no, you know what? They're not. They're, they, there's, a, there's a level of faithfulness here, and we want to be careful to, to have respect for that. And, and you know, for, for me, when I look at my own life and I look at my desire to serve God through Christ, I, look, that's the most important thing in my life. There's, there's nothing else that even comes close to that. And, and I often ask myself, well, what if, Rick? What if? What if your efforts aren't good enough? Now, I don't want that to be the case, and I will never stop trying and getting up when I fall down by God's grace and keeping going. But you know what? If, if, if my efforts are not good enough, then I know that God's mercy is there. And that's not something I want to <laughs> take advantage of, but it's a comfort to know that God has mercy. He sees our human faults and flaws, and he sees our heart. And sometimes when our desire and our discipline isn't as big as our experiences, he knows because we really do want to serve him. So we want to be careful when we look at this and be humble about it, like, oh, look at those people. Hey, be careful. Be careful. We don't want to be looking at anybody else. This is one of those mirror thoughts, I think, that we need to look at. So, so far, we've seen this secondary spiritual class of the great multitude represented in three ways. First, in the parable of the talents, they bury their talent in the earth. They're the foolish virgins who didn't prepare enough to have the oil to last until the bridegroom came. And the apostles. Also, Paul describes how they build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with earthly, perishable materials. They're faithful, but not as faithful as Christ's true church. They fall short, but it's important to notice they still serve God. So we've got a lot here, a lot of pieces, and now it's beginning to make some sense. So this great multitude does fall short, but there is a way for them to still be faithful. And this is just another example of God's grace. We have several New Testament texts that explain this great multitude. Does the Old Testament add anything? Good question. By focusing on Jesus' teachings, the Apostle Paul and some key points in Revelation, we have a dramatic picture unfolding before us of this great multitude class of Christians. The Old Testament does deepen the picture. Now, 
let's examine one Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel. There, we're going to find amazingly detailed instructions for the building of a temple that was never built. The details are so extensive that the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel are devoted to this unusual vision with specific architectural plans of orientation and gates and chambers and decorations and sacrifices and the people working there with exacting measurements and descriptions. And the fact that Ezekiel's temple was never built brings us to conclude that this temple was a grand metaphorical picture of God's future kingdom and its divine government. Now, when we think about a temple in Israel for worship, we have to consider the role of the priesthood. And the priesthood that serves in this Ezekiel's temple that pictures God's kingdom is none other than those described as those strong trees or oaks of righteousness in Isaiah 61.3 that we've been talking about in the parts one and two of this series. And Isaiah 61.6 referred to those trees as priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. As God is describing those who serve in this temple, we will see a profound connection to the priesthood spoken of in Isaiah 61 and to the great multitude class, those who are faithful but need purification. We will see the Ezekiel prophecy as a picture of the revelation symbols we've already touched on. So we put in place two parables of Jesus to give us some practical illustrations of the journey of the great multitude. A door is closed, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then in 1 Corinthians it talked about being saved as by fire. Now we go to a prophecy that's going to help us see it in much more grand detail. But before we get to the Ezekiel prophecy, Julie, let's just get a brief explanation of the Levites and the Levitical priesthood within the nation of Israel. Okay, well, Levi was one of those tribes of ancient Israel comprised of priests and Levites. The priests were from the family of Aaron. He was the brother of Moses. And the Levites were their assistants. They first served in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem. This tribe wasn't given an inheritance of land. It was instead supported from the abundance of the other tribes. Levitical priests served as judges and teachers of God's law, and the Levites were responsible for the temporal things, like the care of the furnishings of the structures. The Levites assisted the priests. Now, in this vision of Ezekiel's temple, this incredible detailed description, there's a sanctuary with an outer court, an inner court, and the most important building, the temple itself. Both priests and Levites serve together in the sanctuary, but with different duties. Okay, so as we go to Ezekiel chapter 44, we're going to focus in on the Levites. And just want to tell you before we start, the Levites, we're going to suggest, are a representation of this great multitude. So as you hear what they do and what happened to them, see if you can see the similarities to all the things that we've already been, been discussing. So yeah, Jonathan, Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 10 to 11, and then we're going to go to verses 13 and 14. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people 
and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Okay, so let's pause there for a moment, because we've got these ministers in the sanctuary, but they were idolatrous. They had, they had veered off the path. And God says, yet, in spite of their sin, I will have them serve. Doesn't that sound familiar to the things that we were just talking about? You see, folks, you've got to see the, the power of Scripture beginning to unfold as we try to understand this great multitude. There's a little bit more here. Verses 13 and 14. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and all its service, and all that shall be done in it. Well, in spite of their idolatry, the Levites were not utterly rejected. In fact, they were given a work assignment to oversee the gates and still serve. Yeah, just now hear that phrase, yet they will not come near to me. Remember when in, in that first parable the door was closed? You, and, and that wasn't the end, but it shows you that there is a, a closed door, doesn't it? So you can see that there's much more to the parables of Jesus when you apply other scriptures. And this sounds very, very much like Revelation chapter 7. And we've already touched on Revelation 7, but we've got to go back there again. Revelation 7, verses 13 to 17. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they were before the throne of God, and they served him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in, in, in these verses, in these verses what we have is we have a big picture. We've got the, in Revelation, these are the ones who came out of great tribulation. The Levites came out of the tribulation of their own idolatry. And you see the connectivity between the two. And then you've got the sense of serving in the temple. They're there. They are where they're supposed to be by God's mercy. And why are they lifted out of that tribulation? Because the lamb will be their shepherd. All the frustration and angst are gone. There's no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. They are now in a wonderful position, and they are obedient sheep. And that's the key. Essentially, the parable of the ten virgins, you don't see that they learned their lesson. The parable of the talents, you see that they're angry over their missteps. In the first Corinthian scripture, you see that they are saved. And here we say that they actually learned. So when you put it all together, you put all the pieces together, this begins to fall into place. That's why you need all the pieces of the puzzle to be able to understand the message. So let's, let's do a, a comparison between the Ezekiel scripture and the Revelation scripture. Julie, let's get started with that. These Levites strayed from godliness to idolatry. And the great multitude class strayed from sacrificial service. These Levites suffered the consequences of their choices. And the great multitude also suffered consequences and loss for their choices. These Levites still had the privilege of serving in the sanctuary. The great multitude will also be given opportunity to serve in God's temple. And these Levites were appointed by grace. 
and the great multitude is shown to be beyond trials and difficulties and will be guided by Jesus in joy and life. So what you have in the Ezekiel prophecy and the Revelation prophecy is a tremendous parallel. And here's what you have. God's grace is shown in both cases, in the picture and in the, in the prophetic fulfillment in Revelation. God knows the heart. And for the Levites and the great multitude, he honors their hearts because he sees sincerity and service in them in spite of their weaknesses. And folks, again, what this does is this shows us the greatness of God, the greatness of his plans, and the loftiness of being called up higher beyond all of these things. That's the point. The point is to get beyond these things, but this is the answer as to what happens to those others in heaven. How did they get there? The scriptures are describing it to us in great, great detail. So let's wrap this piece of comparison up. Lent now, we, we, we've been looking at the heavenly groundwork, that first lens. Well, this is lenses two to four now, heavenly privilege, heavenly inheritance, and heavenly responsibilities. And we're going to ask the same three questions. What's present? What's good? What's missing? And what are the results? So, Jonathan, what's present? This great multitude has obviously overcome. They are in heaven and serving God. Okay, they're there. Julie, but what's missing? While overcoming, they're not the more than conquerors described in Romans 8.37. They've missed out on the highest reward. In this example of Ezekiel's temple, they aren't the priests, but they get to assist the priests. Again, they're not on the throne, but they're before the throne. This is huge. And, and folks, I hope you can see this unfolding as we put all of these different scriptures together. It's telling a unified story. The results here, what are the results? Grace. Th those are the results. It's grace. This great multitude is holy and accepted into the heavenly courts of God. They are accepted. They have no more sorrow, no more trials, no more needs, because, Jonathan, you touched on it earlier, they are true followers of the Lamb. They have learned through the fiery experiences of their own lives. So let me stop here and ask the question, what will the great multitude be doing when they get to heaven? You know, their, their role is not nearly as clearly defined as those of the, the faithful true church, but they are helpful. They are there. They are filling in the gaps. They are, they are, they are the ones that, that help to bring it all together because the work is massive, and so they are essentially at the right hand of those who were called chosen and faithful at their bidding. It seems to me that Ezekiel's temple showed us that, that the Levites assisted the priests with lower duties. The same would be of this great multitude assisting the true church Ex or the bride of Christ. You put the scriptures together and you see a big picture unfolding. And God is such a great delegator, isn't he? And, you know, and the other amazing thing, not, not, not just the delegation, which is pretty remarkable, remarkable, but the foresight, the planning and putting it in prophecy so we could have a basic understanding and know what it is to be called to this very, very, very highest of callings. So now let's continue in Ezekiel 44, but now we're going to be focusing in on the priesthood. We focused in on the Levites. How does Ezekiel 44 describe the priesthood? Let's go to verses 15 to 17. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, now Zadok was a priest during the time of King David, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. 
They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. It shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering to the gates of the inner court and in the house. And you can see the difference. There's a dramatic difference here because they're with God. It's very, very plain. These Levitical priests, these sons of Zadok, have proven themselves faithful and were charged with serving God, coming near to his presence. Levites weren't allowed. Coming near to his presence and wearing linen garments. It's different clothing even. Those who were completely faithful to Jesus are shown to have special privileges as well as wearing these linen garments, and that's a very specific uh, privilege. Let's continue now. Let's continue with Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, in the comparison to the Ezekiel scripture in relation to the priests. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You notice how fine linen comes up in Ezekiel and in Revelation? So you get a sense that these things are, they're, they're, they're showing you the same thing. Now, let's do another comparison between the Levites and the, and the, and the, uh, the priesthood and the great multitude and the truly faithful. Revelation 7, verses 3 to 4, brings up another detail about the, those who are called and faithful and end up being those trees of righteousness. Go ahead, Jonathan. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So now there's a dramatic, dramatic difference here. We've been talking about a great multitude a multitude that doesn't have a number. It's enormous. And now in Revelation, it says, those who were sealed, it gives a number. It says 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, some people say, well, that's a symbolic number. All of us will say that's a, that's a literal number. I believe it's literal because there, it's the comparison. It's the comparison between this numberless group that no man will number because it, the, the, the truly faithful are drawn from it, but there's only a few of those. And Rick, that makes me think of Matthew twenty two fourteen, where it says, many are called, few are chosen. In summary, we've got the church class, again, known in many names in scripture, like the bride of Christ and overcomers. The church class is pictured by the priests. The great multitude is pictured by the Levites. And remember when I said that tribe of Levi was given no inheritance of the land? Serving Jehovah was their inheritance. This is a clue that those two spiritual classes don't have an earthly inheritance. They have a heavenly destination. So, Jonathan, can you just read our text again from uh, that we started with in the, the first segment here? Revelation 7, 9. Let's just recap. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So what stands out to me is that which no one can count. Obviously, this is different from the group with a fixed number, Rick, of the 144,000. They're unnumbered. Not that it's an unlimited amount, but they're unnumbered. And interestingly, look at this comparison. The Lord spoke to Moses in Numbers 149 and said, 
Thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. So another connection. And notice the great multitude is wearing white robes, signifying righteousness, but they had to be washed first after great tribulation. This means their robes were spotted and dirty, indicated they came too close to the world and were contaminated by its influence. Contrast this with the true church who is described in Ephesians 5.27 as without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. So you have a dramatic comparison between the Revelation scriptures and the Ezekiel scriptures on both levels, the great multitude and those truly faithful. Great multitude, the Levites, the priesthood and the in, in Ezekiel, and those trees of righteousness that we keep going back to in Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah 61. So looking at all this, the lenses of heavenly privilege, heavenly inheritance, and heavenly responsibilities, Jesus' true followers will be very closely and directly involved with serving our Almighty God in very specific and unique ways, and we've talked about those especially last week. This reflects the epitome of their heavenly privilege, their heavenly inheritance, and their heavenly responsibilities. It shows how close to the Almighty Creator they are. So Jonathan, what do we take away from this example? Now that we understand the great multitude, we can more clearly understand the magnitude of heavenly grace and favor for all who follow Jesus in this life. With great grace and privilege comes great power and responsibility. And this shows us how lofty the call is to follow Christ. Make no mistake, it is the highest call ever given to this world of mankind. We need to take it seriously. You know, and sometimes we just have to stop, take a breath, and appreciate the details, love, and mercy of God's plan. He really did think of everything. With the great multitude's heavenly role now clear, is there any more to be drawn from the Isaiah 61 prophecy? Glad you asked. We have the last two verses of this prophecy that have not yet been fully considered. As we open these verses up, what we will see is a beautiful conclusion to all that we've discovered from this prophecy that was written over 2,600 years ago. All of what we have and continue to uncover just verifies the amazing details and glory of God's plans for humanity. So what we have is we've talked in great detail about this great multitude, and we've established through Scripture the, the heavenly reward and what's lacking. We've put the puzzle pieces together. So now we want to focus back in on those trees of righteousness. Let's go back to Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So let's look at the phrase, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. These garments, it's pretty simple. These garments are salvation, they're Christ. His provided salvation gave the faithful their heavenly opportunity. Make no mistake, it's not because they're so good, it's because Jesus' sacrifice was so complete and God's mercy was so present. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all who were baptized into Christ, if they are faithful, will be one of those 
trees of righteousness in Isaiah 61.3. So being a tree of righteousness is no small task. Uh, hopefully, as we went through the comparisons in this podcast, you see the dramatic difference between trying hard and overcoming. So we want to make sure that we are, we are stepping up to being truly clothed with the garments of salvation. Now, the next part of Isaiah um, 61, uh, verse 10, is he wrapped me with the robes of righteousness. What we have is salvation plus faith and sacrificial response equals righteousness. We've pointed out just some of these clues in the clothing. The figurative clothing we wear is important. I think we could do a whole podcast episode just studying the symbolism of the clothes. Yeah. What is it you're wearing? <laughs> so let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we can be the symbol of righteousness because of Christ. And that's what the trees of righteousness are all about. They are the symbols of righteousness. They are strong. They're immovable. They are given the responsibility to be there so people can look and say, God is present with us because of Jesus' faithfulness. And now you've got these faithful ones who will be guiding and directing things. So, Julie, let's begin to put these things in order with lenses two through four once again. So the heavenly privilege, inheritance, and responsibilities, Jesus's true followers, what are they going to wear? They're clothed with Jesus's faithfulness and will therefore, therefore be outwardly seen as his representatives. Okay, very straightforward. They will be seen as his representatives. They will be recognizable. There is no mistaking who they are. So that's the being clothed with the garments of salvation. Let's look at the next piece of this verse. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So this, this part of Isaiah 61.10 is an obvious reference to yet another connection of Jesus and his church, and that is the bride of Christ. And we know that that's a very serious and legitimate connection because it started out with John the Baptist speaking about it in John 3.29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So John the Baptist rejoiced in the bridegroom, knowing that he wasn't the bride himself. He wasn't one of the called ones, but he brought, he announced Jesus so Jesus could be brought before the people and call out this church. And again, we see that in Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this bride of Christ is the true church. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This picture of the bride and the bridegroom is a heavenly picture, and it doesn't include the great multitude. They're not part of the bride and the bridegroom. That's why you had the door closed. They didn't do what was necessary to be at that highest, highest level. So, Julie, when we look at the lenses of heavenly privilege, inheritance, inheritance and responsibilities, what can we draw just from this bride and bride, bridegroom picture? Jesus's true followers will be profoundly connected to him for eternity. They will follow his lead in all of their righteous works. They are inseparable. 
when you have a picture of a bride and a bridegroom, that's one of the things. You know, in, in, in earthly marriage, the two become one flesh. You have this inseparable sense of same direction, same focus, same responsibilities, and being led by the bridegroom. Look, that's that's what the, the dream of every faithful Christian is, is to be, is to be at that level. Now, let's look at another connection. We've got the bride of Christ, and this is an incredible and heavenly privilege, inheritance, and responsibility. But there's another powerful and important connection that's not shown in Isaiah 61, and that's the body of Christ. And of course, we know all about those things because there's lots of verses on that. Let's just look at 1 Corinthians 12, 20-21, and verse 27. But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So you have the sense that you are the body of Christ. And, you know, there's this incredible connection. There, there's an instinctiveness to being part of this body. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. So, Julie, when we look at this, we, we've, we've talked about this many times in this life, but what about it in terms of our heavenly privilege, inheritance, and responsibilities? To be closed with Jesus and his merit and to be connected to Jesus as his bride are powerful pictures. So now to be a part of the body of Christ pulls this all together. This connection solidifies the faithful's future responsibilities, which is our main question. So as his body, they will instinctively respond to whatever their head directs them to do. All of this direction from the one who sits at the right hand of the power of God. You see how important the trees of righteousness are in the plan of God. You see how big this is and how many ways we could look at this and say, there's incredible work to be done in heaven. Our final text in Isaiah 61 shows us the results of God's plan that will be carried out through Jesus by the trees of righteousness. Now Isaiah 61, 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So there are many, many, many prophecies that help us to understand these verses. But this is a very, very strong verse to show the earthly uh, reconciliation and restitution, as well as the human reconciliation and restitution. So we're going to look at Isaiah 35, some selected verses there, because this one group of scriptures really helps us to see what's happening here. So the first verses, verses 1 to 3, will be a view of earth's future. And this is from the New International Version. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. You see the beauty of the earth. This is not the only verse that describes it. There are many. You see the incredible beauty of the earth and the wholesomeness of the earth blooming and rejoicing and shouting for joy figuratively. But that's only the beginning. The healing of humanity will be everywhere under the watch care of Jesus and his faithful followers. And this is, will be God causing righteousness and praise to spring up everywhere. Julie, let's go to Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 7. Also from the New International Version, 
Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Can you imagine the healing, the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leaping like a deer? I just understand the incredible righteousness and praise that springs up. That's the way Isaiah describes it. That's what we're seeing amongst humanity. Now, next, the rehabilitation and reconciliation of all of humanity will be everywhere, guided by God's chosen ones. Again, righteousness and praise springing up. Jonathan, let's go to Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. Again, from the New International Version. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the Way of Holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. See, Isaiah 61 said, righteousness and praise springing up before all nations. That's what Isaiah says. And folks, when you have the different prophecies verifying one another, you better pay close attention because they're telling us something amazing that's going to happen in the future. So we've got the healing of the earth, the healing of the people, the reconciliation of the people, and we have over all of it God's judgment and peace will reign for eternity. We know that. We'll go to a different verse here. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Julie, why don't you take that one? And he, God, will judge between many peoples and render decisions for the mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. From ancient times to today, we can't even imagine a world without war. But here, what a blessing to have these instruments of war turned into tools of cultivation. And if we're faithful, we can be a part of this amazing reconciliation process of the earth and all its people. Imagine that. And, you know, that's a good way to, to end it. Imagine that. Well, God not only imagined it, he saw it, he planned it, he put prophecies in so we could understand it. This is the plan of God. And, you know, our whole, for this last three uh, podcasts, we've been talking about what are we going to be doing in heaven? And if you put it all together, folks, what you see is this magnificent amount of work and, and toil in glory and in honor, giving praise to God in every possible way. Lenses two through four, heavenly privilege and heavenly inheritance and heavenly responsibilities. Jonathan, let's wrap this up. The sheer magnitude of the future of humanity and planet Earth in God's plan is unfathomable. Those who truly follow Jesus, even unto death, will have breathtaking power, position, and responsibility bestowed upon them. They, at the command of God through Jesus, will be the drivers of God's kingdom. No greater privilege, inheritance, or responsibility exists anywhere else in all of God's creation. So there you have a look at what the faithful followers of Jesus will be doing when they get to heaven. 
It's an amazing thing to behold, and it's incredible that the scriptures tell us so much. So as we wrap this up, folks, I've got a question for you. What happens after all of this glory? What happens after all of this work is done? My answer, I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. That is what we're looking at. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Think about it. Folks, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, Is It a Sin If I... Part 3. Talk to you next week. 